Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Season 6 of Big Biology. Honestly, I never thought we'd even get to Season 3. Who'd have imagined that anyone would want to listen to us for so long? To start Season 6, we're taking a risk. We're covering a topic that has become taboo in the last few years. Partly because so many politicians and crackpots have co-opted it. But also because it matters so much because of how it's changed our lives. We're talking, of course, about SARS-CoV-2. The virus that killed millions, if not tens of millions of us, caused many long-term physical disabilities, shut down our schools and compromised our kids' development, shuttered our businesses, and sort of broke our social networks. And of course, the pandemic is far from over. A new variant is spreading now, and although we're better able to protect people from the virus's worst effects, COVID continues to kill. Our focus today is the SARS-2 virus, specifically its origins. We've chosen to tackle this topic to do our small part to try to get back some of the trust that we scientists lost since late 2019. Our read is that too many scientists and too many policymakers who are supposed to make science-based decisions just didn't stick to the scientific method. Too often, too few people spoke plainly and simply said, we don't know when we didn't know. Take, for example, masks. Initially, we didn't need them. The virus was said not to be transmissible in the air, so masks were, of course, superfluous. The truth was, we'd let national repositories of masks and other PPE run low, and we were hedging our bets to have enough masks for medical workers should the worst happen. Not long after, when it became clear just how fast the virus spread, masks became imperative, mandated for everyone anywhere lots of people were present. Not only were they now in fact protective, they were so important that no one was to go into public without one, so was to block transmission. But just a while later, they became unnecessary, or at least optional again. After George Floyd was murdered in the summer of 2020, people gathered in huge groups to protest and to seek social change. Some wore masks during the protests, but many didn't. And many experts said that was okay. During that period, mask policy was truly bizarre. You had to wear one on all planes, trains, and buses, but if you were traveling to participate in a protest, you could lose the mask once you reached your destination, even in a giant crowd of people. And it was always okay to take off masks in restaurants and on planes when you were eating. Yeah, how was that supposed to work? In a nutshell, we could have done better. Public health must of course balance science with other concerns, but always we have to remain honest. We could have said what we did and didn't know and probably kept much more of the public trust. So consider this episode as an effort to try to get back some of that trust so we scientists can play our best role when the next pandemic comes, which it will. Today we speak with Alina Chan about the origins of SARS-CoV-2. Alina is a postdoc at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. 
In early 2020, Alina and colleagues found some molecular evidence that SARS-2 was pre-adapted to humans, which led her to start investigating whether the virus could have come from a lab instead of a spillover from wildlife at a wet market, which was the prevailing hypothesis then. Alina's study attracted the attention of Matt Ridley, the author of several biological books and a former member of the UK House of Lords. In late 2021, they published Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19, which is an exhaustive treatment of what was then known about COVID origins. Today, we talk with Alina about that book, but also the many new things that have been revealed about COVID origins since the publication. Many experts think that Alina is one of the last people we should host on this topic. She's become one of the faces of the lab leak hypothesis. But you can read in her book, and you will hear on the show today, that her position is simply follow the data. Alina, like others, is not yet ready to accept that SARS-2 came from a raccoon dog or some other animal in the one on market. Between an obdurate Chinese government and the lack of any virus-positive samples ever being found in animals in that market, or the supply chain, there's more to learn here. First, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, or the WIV, has been collecting and studying thousands of bat samples for years. Second, research conditions in the Wuhan labs were commonly unsafe. And third, an inventory of samples held by the WIV disappeared from the internet in early 2020 and is yet to resurface. Now, to be clear, most all human infectious diseases, HIV, flu, smallpox, MERS, SARS-1, etc., have a zoonotic origin. So it's totally reasonable that SARS-2 came from some wild animal or its handler in the market. But it's also reasonable that the COVID pandemic was started by a research-related incident. And we have to figure this out using every scientific tool at our disposal, and even if the outcome is politically or culturally unsavory. As someone who's worked for more than a decade in a biosafety level 3 facility with viruses but not coronaviruses, trust me, these are tough, complicated research projects. Accidents happen, even to the most seasoned lab workers. But is it possible that someone at WIV unknowingly worked with a frozen bat sample that had SARS-2 in it? If you sample just 100 bats in nature, you can find as many as 30 viruses new to science. Maybe one of those was SARS-2. And if so many mammal species around the world are known now to get infected with SARS-2, including deer, mice, tigers, minks, and more, why wasn't SARS-2 widespread in the Huanan market, assuming that all the mammals there, too, could be infected with it? Critically, we, like many others, do not now favor any particular origin story. We have a strong agenda, though, but a wholly scientific one. We want no reasonable hypothesis to be off limits, and we hope for a thorough investigation, even though it'll likely take years and a lot of luck to come up with a dispositive explanation. Finally, before we hear from Alina, we want to thank Andy Dobson, Eric Bortz, and especially David Quammen for sharing their perspectives on this critical topic. It was David's article in the New York Times Magazine a few weeks ago that motivated us to produce this episode. David, thanks for the time and the energy that went into that piece, and Andy and Eric, thanks for talking to us about your thoughts on COVID origins. We hope this episode inspires you, too, to seek the best possible explanation of COVID origins. Please write to info at bigbiology.org and tell us what you think about it and share it with friends and family. But most importantly, please keep supporting the scientific mindset that will eventually inform us about COVID's origins and position us better for the next zoonotic event. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Artie Martin. And this is Big Biology. Lena, thank you so much for joining us on Big Biology today. Um, our main focus is going to be the origins of SARS-CoV-2, the virus that caused uh, causes COVID-19. But before we get into that science, we want to talk about how you came to be so invested in it. In 2021, you and Matt Ridley published the book Viral, and now you're working at the Broad Institute at MIT and Harvard. 
and it, your, your work has been in bioengineering, but well, you're not working on SARS in the way that you have been working on it now. So how did you come to take the role that you do? Yeah, so rewind back to, to late 2019, early 2020, I was a postdoc at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, um, and I was working in the field of gene therapy. So in this in this group that I, that I still work in, I and, and the team of people, we develop delivery vehicles to, to send gene therapies into patients. And so one, one quite famous example of this is the treatment of uh, pediatric spinal muscular uh, atrophy. So this is treated with a, a gene therapy a delivery vector that was essentially discovered 10 years, on just 10 years before the FDA approved this treatment. So that, that speaks to the speed at which people can find novel viruses. So this is a virus, but it just doesn't cause disease. So it's a non-pathogenic virus. Discover it and then turn it into a gene therapy. Use it to deliver a gene treatment that saves lives, that helps to delay the progression of, of uh, these rare and really uh, terrible genetic diseases. Mm. Um, so we're, we're going to talk a lot about your book, Viral, and uh, just, just to kind of set the stage for that, you evaluate a variety of different hypotheses for the origins of SARS-CoV-2, uh, super interesting uh, sort of data brought to bear on the various ideas. Um, you, just just to sort of give, I guess, the punchline away, you're going to come down reasonably strongly on the side of the lab leak hypothesis, even though you're not you're not sure about that. We're going to get into all the details of that, but I just wanted to ask, like right here at the very beginning, um, how has writing that book changed your life and the way you're interacting with with the scientific community? So by the time I decided to write this book, Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19, I had spent more than a year looking into this question of how the pandemic began. And so what, what my friends had advised me about that at the time was that you've, you've tweeted so much. And I think I had made like thousands of tweets in the past year about, <laughs> about the original COVID-19. They say it's time to put it all down in one place because, you know, time erodes like tweets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so no one's really going to go back unless there's an investigation or something to look at thousands of tweets. So I, I agreed with them. It was, it was really, I think my goal to write the book, like, the, the one book <laughs> that, that people in the future read about the origin of COVID-19. So this book is, is, is incredibly balanced. And actually many people have told me that the best argument for a natural origin is in viral because we don't, we don't make up straw men. We, we don't overinterpret data. We, we just lay out all the evidence and we make the strongest case we can for natural origins versus, versus lab origins. And this book has an incredibly long citation list. I think it might be one of the books with the longest citation list you can see so that readers can actually go to the sources of all the information and effects and like developments uh, cited in the book. So I'd say how it changed my life is that it cemented me as public enemy number one for, for those uh, scientists, experts, others who are trying to downplay a lab origin for whatever reason. I think the book might be one of the worst things to happen to them. Besides evidence emerging towards pointing towards a lab leak or, or the intelligence agencies changing the shifting towards a lab, lab leak, I think I think viral is, is probably one of the top three things, the worst things to happen to them because it, it lays out all of this, this argument for a lab origin in a very approachable way for a layperson. You don't have to be a scientist to understand this. And it's quite clear that as you get to the end of the book and more developments appear, that more evidence is piling up for a lab origin of COVID-19. No one knows for sure. That, that is a scientific consensus, actually, that we just don't know. And both lab and natural are plausible. But in my view, there's certainly more circumstantial evidence for a lab origin than a natural yeah. origin at this point. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt just just my compliments to the book because it did feel like a very balanced and fair treatment oh, of you. the different hypotheses, and it you know it felt it felt like 
it had integrity because you guys were pursuing the data and the sources instead of coming in with preconceptions. So uh, that was that was that was nice to nice to see. Um, one of the comment about all the citations and the you know the support at the end. So I was reading this book on my Kindle, and you know on a Kindle you don't really know when a book is going to end, and it ended much earlier than I thought it was going to, you know, based on the percentage that I'd read through. I think it's because there's this giant section of notes and references at the end. So. There's so much more to go, so much more to learn. Oh, wait. <laughs> wait, wait, it's over? <laughs> I, mean, just, I mean, just to comment on the, the writing in the book too, it is incredibly approachable. I mean, trying to cover something so fraught, something so complex and complex even to biologists, because there's a lot of molecular biology, there's epidemiology, there's sociopolitical interaction. I mean, there's so many, so much dimensionality to it, and yet you still make it easy to read. I mean, it just, it just, you know, is quickly processed. So that was, that was really present. I have to attribute that mostly to Matt Ridley. He, he's the, you know, established prominent. Sure, he has practice, yes, right? He yeah. has a lot of practice. Yeah. 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 Uh, one one follow up question just on this topic. So you know you just characterized yourself as public enemy number one for some subset of people. So so is that affecting the kinds of things that you're going to be able to do in your career and the sorts of collaborations that you establish? I mean, is that having like consequences for you? I mean, so go back to early 2020. I, I certainly was not aware of this faction of of scientists who were trying to downplay a lab origin. At the time, maybe I was too naive or idealistic. I just thought that all scientists would want to approach this objectively to find the truth. And so what I became famous for in 2020, and, and there's a whole Boston Magazine article on me by Robin Jacobson, it, it, it lays out that I, I attracted so much attention um, from journalists and the public, not because I said it came from a lab, but because I left the door open for a lab origin. So I said, both natural and lab have to be considered, no matter how likely or unlikely. And that was enough in 2020 to, to draw all this attention, both positive and negative to me. And so this, this faction of scientists who tried to shut down, prematurely shut down investigation to lab origin or, or consideration of a lab origin, uh, their emails were only released, their private exchanges were only released in 2021. And that's when I became aware that, hey, there are all these powerful scientists who don't want a lab origin to be talked about, to be considered. And so I think at that point, yes, my, my, my panic level went up slightly. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, it's not pleasant. It's not the kind of situation a, a, a junior scientist wants to find themselves in. Not, even a senior scientist doesn't want to find themselves in yeah, <laughs> the situation. Yeah. Nobody does. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a level of vulnerability, understandably. So we want to be really careful. In fact, I think it's important to point out that there was and is efforts by non-scientists to represent things in a particular way. So I understand that, you know, there's, there's sort of a arms waste of a kind where maybe there's some good intentions to mitigate not so good intentions coming from another place. So can you, can you say something about what you know or what you expect the motivations to have been for these scientists to not really give the, the lab leak very much credibility? So I think there are certainly different reasons why different scientists would not want the lab leak hypothesis to be properly considered. Uh, the, the most direct one is, is when you have been collaborating or funding the scientists in Wuhan who might have accidentally started the pandemic. So if, if you are amongst their collaborators or funders, this, this has backlash for you as well no matter where you are around the world, because you have shared ideas, you have encouraged them, you have given them money to do it. And so there is arguably a sense of blame that might be cast on them if, if this is found to be 
a lab leak. It would destroy their legacies, their reputations, their, their safety. So for, for that small group of scientists who collaborate and funded with the Wuhan Institute of Virology specifically, there is the, the direct consequences for them. And then, so if we look at the, the people with further relationships, like less, less strong relationships with the Wuhan lab, we're thinking about perhaps scientists who have advocated quite strongly for some risky uh, virological experiments to be done. So these are scientists who, who are not out to cause trouble, but they do think that it's important for scientists in the lab to, to do experiments that help them see how a virus can get better and better infecting human cells or jumping from species to species. And their motivation for this is to understand how future outbreaks might happen and to, in the lab, start developing vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics to, to test for and prevent and to tackle these emerging outbreaks. Um, so for, for this group of scientists, they've spent many years advocating for these risky experiments. What happens when one of those risky experiments starts a pandemic when millions of people are dead? You know? so, so here, even though they're not directly connected to the WIV, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, they, they still have the sense of, of blame, I guess, that the public might point at them and say, you, you encourage this work, you say it was a risk worth taking, and now, now millions of people are dead because of that risk. So there are those, those folks as well. And then there are people who are even more distanced from the whole thing, but they see that if a lab origin is investigated seriously and, and perhaps even confirmed to be true, it would lead to both geopolitical and even within country political <laughs> chaos. So unfortunately in the US now, it, it's devolved into this situation where it feels like if a lab origin is found, the Republicans have won. And if it if it's natural, then the Democrats have won. This this is totally bizarre to me as a non-American, as a Canadian looking in on this. It's just like, why? Because, because the origin of this pandemic has nothing to do with anybody's political identity. Mm -hmm. You know, like whether it came from a raccoon dog at the market or a lamb accident, it, you being a Democrat or Republican, it didn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. we just want to know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... That's that's true. We all want to know, and we could see it that way as scientists. But when it was co-opted by politicians, you know, that's how we ended up in that scenario. It became a flag, and now winning the flag, the, the science is actually inconsequential. So it is it is an issue of, of winning versus understanding. Yeah, yeah. It's just playing playing with different um, with different games. Yeah. So I wonder. Um, let, let's one more question, and then let's go to to what we know about the origins itself. To what extent do you think that the culture of academia? has anything to do with this. So, you know, you talked about the various different potential classes of, of motivations of, of people that took the roles that they did, but those of us that are active scientists, I mean, we all know that there's an enormous pressure to publish a lot in prominent places to do so quickly, to get grants, to get collaborators. I mean, did that play a role or how, how do you think about that? I mean, of course. So it's, it's only natural for all scientists to want to publish in, in prestigious journals. Uh, but that wasn't the only factor here. So um, in recent months, the private exchanges uh, between the authors of a very uh, famous paper called Proximal Origin that's been cited thousands of times in the media to, to downplay a lab origin, their, their private messages have been subpoenaed by Congress and released on the internet. And so in these private messages, you can see that they are struggling with doubt. So they convened in early 2020, and, and they initially, many of them believed it was more likely that it came from a lab. But over time, they, they were really freaking out about the potential consequences of, of making this public, of making their doubts public. And 
within the month, uh, they had sort of cycled themselves into saying that we don't have to raise the lab leak uh, hypothesis. We can just say that nature has everything it needs to make this virus. And they emailed the lead author of Proximal Origin, emailed the journal where it was eventually published, Nature Medicine. They said to the editor, let's I'll edit this paper so it makes it clear that this virus does have a natural origin. So they put out this paper uh, published in March 2020 with the intent to make it clear to the public that it was natural. But in the background, they continued to worry. So this lead author continued to worry even a month after publication, worrying that the evidence was not strong against a virus being manipulated in the lab, being uh, cultured and passaged in the lab and escaping into the wild. So he continued to worry. So I think that it it wasn't just about publishing in a big journal for the scientists. It wasn't just the adrenaline of, you know, most scientists having, you know, this excitement of publishing in a big journal. It wasn't just that. For them, they were grappling with questions of what happens if we tell the public that even we, the top like experts in this area, are worried about a lab origin. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, let's, at this point, we haven't actually laid out the alternative hypotheses, so let's let's do that now and touch briefly on the evidence for and against each one. Um, maybe let's frame this in terms of three, three possible hypotheses, uh, what we would call the bioweapon hypothesis, the lab leak hypothesis, and the spillover, the natural hypothesis you've been talking about. Um, let, let's just start with the bioweapon hypothesis, because I think that one's going to be fairly easy to, to pass over. Um, there's been some talk in the press about whether or not the, the virus was engineered in some way by the Chinese military uh, as a way of, of starting a pandemic um, or disabling one population or, or another. Uh, what, what's the evidence for and against that? So I think that some people had these suspicions because the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which I'll call the WIV, uh, has some PLA research going on in there. And it's known to be an institute that carries out classified research projects. So, so some of these like thesis, like graduate thesis in that, in that institute can be sealed for up to two decades. So it's not your regular like university here in the States where you just defend publicly and then go off and with your life. Like people, there are some students and trainees in this institute whose projects cannot be talked about for like two decades, even after the, like their thesis is written. So because of this this institute and its relation to the PLA, that's why people, I think, had this uh, fear that the virus had been developed as a bioweapon. And furthermore, one thing that happened in the early days of the pandemic is that this uh, general, this military general, uh, Chen Wei, was sent in to commandeer the WIV. So I think this stoked a lot of fear in people that there was something unto it happening in that, in that lab. And that's why this general had been sent in to, to take charge. To my knowledge... I don't think that there is evidence that this is a bioweapon. Again, I, I do admit that it's difficult when you don't have access to the lab records and to the knowledge of activities happening in that building. But this this virus, if you if you look at its characteristics, one would not predict these characteristics to be something useful as a bioweapon. You know, it's it's not like you took a, a particularly lethal strain of Ebola or anthrax and like developing it in the lab. This this looks to me very much like if it had come from the lab, it looks very much like a natural SARS-like virus that was discovered in some animal out there. Didn't seem to be causing very much disease, but was potentially enhanced in the lab. And that's why it reached some pandemic potential. Mm -hmm. So if it was a bioweapon, what, what kinds of things might it have? I mean, what, what would be the signatures of SARS-CoV-2 as a bioweapon that we would look for? So I think this, this argues... 
that scientists know how to <laughs> engineer, <laughs> precisely how to engineer viruses. That's where I was going. It's not so easy, right? <laughs> yeah, highly transmissible, highly yeah, virulent. And I would say that actually it's, it's not. Uh, so scientists don't have that mastery over biology yet, uh, even, even though it's making huge leaps and bounds, is that I think most lab outbreaks are actually accidental. And I think most people can agree that they're mostly accidental. They're not intentional. Uh, and so th there is this argument from, from people who insist that this pandemic started in the market. They say there's no way that a scientist would have engineered the virus to precisely be able to cause a pandemic like this. And I would say that that's not the argument that most lab leakers uh, are making. Most lab leakers with the quotation marks are saying that this is an accident. This is an, an experiment gone wrong, that, that someone might have thought it's it's a de-risk experiment. Someone might have taken this virus and, and thought, this is does, doesn't look like it's causing severe disease in people or animals. It's fine for me to play around with this, to put in some features and understand how it could get better in infecting human cells. And accidentally, it leaks out the lab and causes a pandemic. This is not a virus engineered to cause a pandemic. So we want to turn more in more detail to the, the data and the observations that might support this view of a, a, a lab leak accident. Um, but maybe before we do that, let's just spend a minute on taking seriously the, the zoonotic origins, the spillover idea, and and just make the case that, that you do very well in, in the book. There's like substantial evidence that it could have been a zoonotic transmission, you know, somewhere in, in Wuhan, maybe at the Huanan seafood market. So so what what's the evidence for that kind of origin? So if you're looking at a natural origin, there are actually two branches of this. So the first one is the most commonly perceived one, which is that there is an ancestral bat virus version of this pandemic virus. It's in bats and it jumps through different intermediate animals. So something like a civet or a raccoon dog, let's say, into people. And that this spillover might have happened at the Huanan Seafood Market in Wuhan, where, where there were known to be these sort of animals susceptible to COVID-19 being sold on occasion in that market. Uh, the, the second branch is where a human person is exposed to these viruses, whether from a bat or another intermediate animal outside of Wuhan, and then travels to Wuhan. And there, that person starts an outbreak. So that person could be a wildlife trader. That's why they went to the market in the middle of Wuhan. And, and there they started a super spreader event. So that, that's the second scenario. Both are considered natural spillover uh, hypothesis. So I would say that the main evidence for a natural origin has to do with the one of the earliest uh, outbreaks being detected at the market, at this market in the center of the city. People who argue for the market hypothesis say, what are the odds? that one of the earliest clusters would be at the market and not, let's say, at the hospital or, or like a library or a school or an elderly care home. Why, why was it at yeah, the market? Anywhere, anywhere else in Wuhan, yeah. Yes, why was it anywhere else in Wuhan? Why was it at this market? So um, I would say that there is still a plausible pathway that this is true, although it has to explain several pieces of evidence that, that don't really point towards this natural origin right now at that market. Uh, one of it is that key evidence for natural origin that was very easily found for SARS in the 2003 outbreak and, and MERS over the multiple outbreaks have, have not been found for SARS-CoV-2, for the COVID-19-causing virus. So in the case of SARS-2003 and MERS, uh, people, the investigators very quickly tracked down intermediate hosts. So they tracked down the animal sources of this virus that the earliest cases had been uh, exposed to. Many of the index cases, so the patient zeros or, or the earliest patients, 
in Salas and Mers had been identified as handling these animals. So they were like waitresses, chefs, like people who, uh, vendors who, who delivered the animals uh, from, from market to restaurants. So these people were directly in contact with these animals. So there's very strong evidence that the viruses, SARS and MERS, were jumping from these animals to the people in that profession. Um, but in the case of COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, those animals have failed to emerge, have failed to be found or reported. And this is despite lots of sampling of, of mammals in the market, right? Yes, exactly. And, and SARS-CoV-2 also is now recognized to be highly transmissible across multiple species. So it just jumps from species to species, like out of control. So the thought is, is are the Chinese authorities powerful enough to cover up all of that, <laughs> to, to go down the entire supply chain and to, stem, to stop any more outbreaks of this highly transmissible animal uh, virus? Uh, for me... I think it's it's less probable. So to, to lay out what the zoonosis proponents are saying right now, they're, they're saying that this explosively transmissible virus that jumps from species to species like nothing evolved in a very brief period right before it emerged in Wuhan, jumped into people two times at the market and then disappeared completely. So for me, that seems fairly unlikely but I I think it's still plausible. It's still on the table. It still deserves to be investigated. Yeah. So two things I want to follow up on what you just said. Let's start with the latter one first. Two times. There are two different lineages. Say more about that and, and how it plays into the zoonotic event. So one piece of evidence that makes the market less likely as the ground zero of the pandemic is that all of the early patients from that market had what is called the B lineage of the virus. So they were all infected by this B lineage of the virus. Uh, another early lineage of the virus that was circulating in the city in Wuhan was the A lineage virus. So even though we call these two A and B lineages, these two viruses are only separated by two mutations. So only two letters out of nearly 30,000 letters in the genome are different. And the A lineage, uh, these two letters are, are closer to the bat ancestral virus than in the B lineage. And that's why most scientists will, will look at these two sequences and say B must have come later than A because the odds of, of a virus emerging in the human going backwards two times into and precisely towards the bad ancestral virus is, is very improbable. So when you see that at the market, all the early cases only were infected by the B lineage, it suggests to you that someone later on in the pandemic had gotten the B lineage, gone into that market and started the outbreak at that market. Because people with the A lineage were, were not linked to the market. Several of them had been exposed quite early. There's one family that was exposed uh, at the end of December uh, 2019, never went to the market, traveled back home to a different part of China. And, and then that's where they, they realized they had COVID and found to have lineage A. So from the point of view of the zoonosis proponents, this this is a piece of evidence actually against that market being being the place of origin. So how could they possibly argue and turn this around? So later, the Chinese CDC released uh, data from the surface samples collected at the market, albeit these were samples taken later in 2020. So like way after the outbreak had raged out of control in the city, they found that a single surface sample at the market had an A lineage sequence. So the zoonosis proponents used this single sample from like a surface on on the market to say that, aha, this means that the A lineage was also at the market and it must have also jumped from an animal to a human. So here they're using some pretty forced reasoning rather than the more common sense 
like idea that another sick person carrying the A lineage just walked in the market and contaminated it. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was coughing all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. So this whole market actually was the size of more than nine NFL fields. Oh, wow. Of retail. Oh, I didn't realize wow. it was that big. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's huge. And it was right next to the, the busiest like metro hub, like subway hub in Wuhan. And it's flanked by three of the central hospitals. And it was uh, just a short walk from the Wuhan CDC. So this, this is a very centrally located market. It's not like out there in this like rural area or suburb. It was like right smack. <laughs> Central district, the most populous and district with the most elderly people. So this whole place completely spattered with viruses by the time the CDC and other investigators went in to collect samples. Yeah, okay. And one other thing to, to follow up from what you said a minute ago, I think a, a piece that I haven't heard emphasized enough, it's not just that there wasn't much virus found, well, there wasn't virus found in the animals at the market. The supply chains, I mean, the many, many different people, uh, the many, many different species, the many different places, I don't know how much that was chased up. And But but if you have more information, I would love to hear about it, but not finding SARS and all of those other places that must have you know gotten the animals to bring to market in the first place, that seems to be incredibly strong evidence too. So do we know any more about that? Do we know about the magnitude of effort to look for virus? Yeah, so we're, we're getting conflicting reports about how much of a search was done. I mean, certainly the position that I think is the most logical is that this, the origin of COVID-19 has huge national security implications for China. There's no doubt in my mind that they would have done everything to find out where this virus came from. Because as, as a country like that, you, you just cannot risk leaving it alone. You can't be like, oh, let's let the source just do whatever they want. We don't want to find out. <laughs> you need to find out so you can shut it down and prevent these things from happening again. Like consider that China has locked down so many of its major cities, like to the point where people are rioting in the streets. You know, they cannot afford to let the origin of a virus like this remain a mystery to, to the authorities. So they, I, I think that they must have done everything they could to find out. But, but put that aside, there are a few conflicting reports here. So Naturally, the Chinese investigators said that they did follow up. They, they said that they went to the, through the supply chain. They went to, through farms, uh, zoos, like markets, searching for the virus. And they said they came up empty. But those who argue against that say that there were farms that were shut down reportedly without testing. So no one even came to collect samples. They just shut those farms down. And they say that the search wasn't extensive enough and that the wildlife trade is so huge that you would need to sample very aggressively to find this virus. But my counter to that is that this virus is so hyper-transmissible. You know, how, how can you stamp it out? You've, you've seen when it exploded in mink farms around the world, how difficult it was to stamp it out. And, and now it's, it's just everywhere in the wild deer population in the States. So how, how likely is it that without testing, without finding the source, you managed to shut it down? I don't know. So is, is this certain that there's no intermediate host? No, it's not certain. But we can say that there's no evidence that the search has been performed and no evidence has been found or reported. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's this interesting thing that you bring up in the book about ascertainment bias and, and sort of where the local authorities in Wuhan were initially looking for the virus. And, and you had an interesting exchange with Michael Warby about this on the AAAS podcast as well. Um, and, and let me see if I can just articulate how, how I understood it. It's that very early on when, when the earliest cases started arising, the authorities essentially like focused on the ones that they had prior knowledge had been associated with the market. And so rather than looking more broadly across the city, they, they of course found early cases associated with the market because that's where they looked. Is that, is that what happened? Yes, that's exactly what happened. So 
to to make things clear for for people who are new to this, there are these uh, famous science papers now by Warabi and some of the proximal origin authors saying that the Huanansi food market is the epicenter of the pandemic. And the data they use to support this comes entirely from the Chinese CDC. But these authors, they admit in their paper as well that they didn't have access to the actual data. <laughs> so what they have is just drips and drabs. They didn't have access to the methods. So as scientists, this is, this is crucial. If you don't know how data was collected, you don't know how incomplete or how biased it is. So it's very problematic that they went out with such a strong statement that the market was the epicenter when they didn't have access to the complete data or the methods. But what emerged quickly enough from the Chinese CDC, just looking at their, their reports in early 2020, so back when any like cover-up or anything about the origins was still like you know, not coordinated at least. So in early 2020, in 2021, and even 2023, the people who investigated the early cases in Wuhan have all come out and said like it was because we saw this small cluster. They had seen four cases, four early cases linked to the market. And after that, everyone assumed it was just SARS-1 happening again. They just thought it was 2003 SARS again. So they focused their search entirely on that market. Anyone with links visited, worked at the market. The three hospitals surrounding the market. So if you if you followed that, if you'd only look for patients at those three hospitals, the pattern would obviously be a radial pattern, like dispersing out from that area. And also the district of the market. So using these criteria, that's why all of the cases are either linked to the market, could live very far away, but linked to the market, or if unlinked to the market, they look like they're radiating out of the market because, because of this search method. You had some interesting points about expectations for how rapidly the virus would evolve or not, depending on how new it was in human populations. And, and my understanding is that, you know, if, if, if it were a zoonotic event, the virus is, you know, in some way pre-adapted or adapted to circulating in whatever animal host it came from. It jumps into a new host, humans. That's going to be a different kind of cellular machinery and immune system, and, and that should impose very hard selection on early lineages of the virus. And as a result, you should see quite rapid evolution. So, so did we see rapid evolution of those those early samples of virus? No. So, so what we're saying here is we're we're thinking about the conventional way of thinking about spillover, especially informed by the first SARS and all the MERS outbreaks, is that scientists, experts in that field, had made this assumption that these viruses are not immediately adapted to the human host. So when they're circulating in bats or the intermediate animals, they have to gain some adaptive mutations, mutations that are advantageous for them just to jump into humans and to cause transmission and infection. And so in the case of SARS and MERS, you, you can see it plain as day. Like you can see these viruses, they're trying many times. They're circulating definitely amongst camels or civet cats, things like that. And they're trying many times to jump into humans. And eventually they do. And they, they start picking up many adaptive mutations during the jump and, and after spreading in humans to, to get increasingly optimized for, for causing human uh, infection and, and spreading between humans. But for SARS-CoV-2 with the COVID-19 virus, that is completely missing. So in the early phase of the outbreak, there was only a single mutation uh, that was considered adaptive. Uh, that is the uh, D614G mutation. And today, it's widely understood that this mutation arose in response to the emergence of a furin cleavage site 
in the virus. So we can talk a bit more about this feature, but this fearing cleavage sign is a gain of function feature. It's a feature that transforms a normally weak attenuated virus into a pandemic level virus, once it, one that's capable of spreading wildly uh, amongst humans and other animals. Okay. And we do want to come back to the and to its role in transmission and everything. I think that's a great way to to turn to the, the ideas of lab leak. Uh, I mean, there, maybe we'll get to this in the next section, but I think, you know, what you just said, Alina, um, raises the question of what, what happened so that there was not a lot of early evolution in, in the virus in humans in Wuhan. So that, that implies that it was associated with humans or associated with human cells earlier than that. So what the, the strongest zoonosis proponents are saying, and this is in those science papers from 2022 by the Proximal Origin Authors, they're saying that this pandemic virus was so well adapted for human transmission uh, that it required zero mutations to cause two separate outbreaks at the market. So they're saying that both the niche A and B jumped at the market and immediately caused an outbreak. So in their paper, they, they say like no adaptation was required. This virus was ready to cause a pandemic. And and so that is their position. They they see this well-adaptedness of the virus not as evidence for a lab origin, but they see it just as a as 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 more reasoning for natural origin. So they've argued that it's because the virus is so well adapted and has this gain of function feature, that's why it caused a pandemic, a natural pandemic. So they in their minds they have they have sort of thrown the lab origin of the table. They're, they're insisting that any evidence even for adaptedness points towards a natural origin. Hmm. That's really confusing because it seems that it works for either one of the hypotheses. I mean, there's so many viruses, so many species of bats. I mean, this particular mutation, as we're going to talk about, this particular mutation may be likely for these viruses, but the idea of pre-adaptation, I don't see how this particular thing is convincing in either way. You could come up with explanations for either one. I mean, this is evidence for either one of them, depending on where you want to start. Exactly. That's what I said in 2020, and that's what I've continued to say. <laughs> I, I, I said from the very beginning, I said that we don't know how this adaptation happened. We don't know if it happened in the wild. Don't know if it happened in humans. We don't know if it happened in the lab, but right. we have to investigate to find out how. But what the zoonosis proponents, the, the extreme ones, they're like, we know how it happened. They're like, it must have happened in, in they, they said in, in 2020, it must have happened in humans. And then they're, they're saying in 22, it must have happened in animals. But no matter what they're saying, it didn't happen in the lab. So that's their stance. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's walk through the big picture about the lab leak, multiple alternatives, and then go back into the, the fear and cleavage site. So um, there's a lot of different ways that we could approach this. Um, I think one of the things that I really like about your book and, and your take on this in general is that you're always laying all the possibilities on the table. Now, in this particular case, unless you want to spend about four hours going through all the alternatives, <laughs> we might want to winnow them to the most likely. Um, and instead of laying out all of the different ways that lab leak might have happened, let me just ask you to do one of my favorite concepts, steel man the argument against the lab leak. What's the best set of ideas for why it isn't a good explanation? So I'd say that it's only possible to steel man an argument against a... Uh highly engineered form of the virus leaking from a lab because there's just no way and even the top experts admit this even the proximal origin authors admit it there's no way to distinguish between a natural virus that went through the wildlife trade and jumped into a person in Wuhan 
which is a natural virus that was collected by scientists, brought back to the city and then leaked from the lab. There's no way unless you can, you know, magically view like the recordings of history in your mind. <laughs> There's just no way to distinguish Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> yeah, those two pathways. Uh, it will require an investigation, right? Like uh, talking to people, interviewing them, collecting historical facts. So that's the only way it's, the science cannot distinguish which pathway uh, it took for this natural virus. So a steel man argument that's been made against an engineered version of the virus leaking from a lab in Wuhan is that no one outside of that lab in the public ever heard of this virus, the precursor of this pandemic virus being collected or studied in that lab. So they, they, the, the Zoonosis proponents, they insist that unless you can find evidence that this precursor, that a version of the pandemic virus was being studied in the lab before the detected outbreak, then you have no proof. Then, then you can't say that these scientists ever had it in their hands. They, they had to have this in their hands to cause an outbreak. That's what they're saying. This is the so-called dispositive evidence. Yeah. Yes. So unfortunately, this, this steel man is, is not very strong. It's, it's very uh, brittle, actually, because the fact is that this, this institute engaged in a lot of classified research. And based on the publicly available uh, publications and data from, from that lab, at least in, in late 2019, most of the things that published were from viruses they had collected before 2016. So that, that leaves at least two or three years we, we don't know what new samples or viruses they collected. We don't really know what experiments they had done. And, and some of them say that, well, what about the people who work closely with them? Shouldn't they know all of the viruses that they have in their collection? And unfortunately, the answer is no. <laughs> so there is an organization called the Equal Health Alliance that's based in New York City. They have been longtime collaborators with the uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology since, since the first SARS outbreak. That's when they joined forces and started this whole... I guess, campaign to, to find natural viruses in the wild, understand how they could jump into people and, and to, uh, through this, prevent future outbreaks. This Equal Health Alliance had been collaborating with them and sending money from the states to this lab in Wuhan. But at the end of the day, they did not have access to the database that had been amassed at this Wuhan lab. Even though money had gone through them to this Wuhan lab, they did not have access. So when the pandemic started, this, this database had gone missing at the WIV. They, they, they didn't share with anybody. They made up all sorts of excuses, things like I'm upgrading the database, things like we're being hacked. So that's why we can't share the database with you. Uh, and so even the closest collaborators don't know what viruses, what samples have been taken like comprehensively by, by the Wuhan scientists. So, so in that database, there are probably, there's probably information about the viruses that were collected between 2016 and 2019. And, and in that list, there might be something that's more closely related to SARS-CoV-2 or very, very closely related if we could only have a look at that data. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I don't, I've never done this kind of research myself, but I do have samples in freezers that are in the midst of being investigated. So, I mean, yeah, it's understandable that even if there's lots of people trying to figure out what's in these samples, that doesn't happen instantaneously. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, I want to dig into the sort of the mechanics of how these viruses get studied and, you know, methodology where lab leak might be plausible. But but I want to go back really quickly to one thing that you said in terms of the interaction between the EcoHealth Alliance and the, and the WIV. Um, this database, is it the case that the database is still not available? And do we know anything about the timeline there? Or have there been promises made about when access might be granted? So in 2019, I'd say that the Chinese scientists were, were very excited uh, about 
showing all the work they've done over the past decade and hunting down these viruses, looking for novel viruses in, in bats, in the wildlife trade, and even amongst sick people. So they went to rural areas, people in the wildlife trade, looking for people with uh, illnesses, like undiagnosed illnesses and collecting samples from them and bringing it back up to Wuhan. So they, they were really proud of this work. You know, they, they, they really, I think they saw themselves on a mission to prevent future pandemics from nature. So it, it wasn't like they were trying to downplay the work they were doing. And so by, by early, mid-2019, they had put online this database describing more than 22,000 samples collected for, for pathogen discovery. Um, but in September 2019, it was just taken offline. And then there was no more external access to this database, even though there, there are hints that uh, internal access continued through like early 2020. Uh, but, but since 2019, no more external access. So if someone had had access, they could have gone in and, and checked like how many samples did they collect in like 2016 through 2018, let's say, uh, and from where and, and from what types of animals uh, and what, what types of viruses did they find in these samples. So this, even if it didn't give a real-time insight into what was happening in the lab, certainly would have given a much more updated perspective than what was in the public scientific literature. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think a lot of what we've been talking about so far is the WIV, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But there's another research entity that maybe, I mean, at least in the recent past has, has gained a little bit more attention. So maybe let's let's also include what we're learning about the what what is colloquially called the Chinese CDC. It's right next to the one on market. You mentioned it just a minute ago. But in particular, I want to ask you about the conditions, the research conditions that we know to exist in these places. In the book, you wrote about um, a lot of the research with these viruses that were discovered in that period, the research about which we know, happening under what are called biosafety level two conditions. Um, I don't know how much we want to get into the weeds or you want to share the details about the difference between three versus four versus two versus all of these things. But what can you tell us about the practices that are known to have happened in the lab, other leaks that may have happened, uh, rates at which that they were disposing of biohazards, training protocols, these kinds of things. What are the, the details that we do know in one or both places about the pathways by which escape might have happened? So I'd say that when, when news of this novel coronavirus emerged in early 2020, most people were thinking, holy cow, it must have escaped from that high biosafety BSL-4 lab. They thought there must be some top secret research happening in that super safe like lab, and it broke out because it was so stealthy and transmissible. But as, as others, including myself, started looking deeper and looking through all the publications and, and videos and photos uh, from the WIV, uh, we soon realized that the biosafety conditions at which these live SARS-like viruses had been handled were not that high. Were actually the, the some would say the lowest level of biocontainment that is in a lab uh, at BSL two. This is where they studied the live and recombinants, so like engineered SARS-like viruses. Um, and so that, that that shocked a whole bunch of virologists. Honestly, one one of the proximal origin autists uh, saw that and he said that screwed up. Like you shouldn't be studying these viruses at BSL two. Another virologist said, "I can't believe they did something so stupid." Like, yeah. <laughs> and I think a one one key thing maybe to mention there because I've done a lot of work myself in a BSL three. The difference between two and three. In three, and especially four, the precautions you take with the way that it looks in the movies, wearing the Tyvek suit and multiple gloves and all of this protection, that's three. And four is even more involved. But two is basically working in a, in a hood with the airflow controlled such that exposure is low. But really, the transmission of an airborne pathogen in that context, there's effectively no protection or minimal protection, just to you know give some, somewhat of an image of what the difference is. Yes. And, and BSL-2s are very variable 
around the world. So it's not like it's one standard, like uniform lab that's shipped to every country. No, every like institute even sets up their own BSL2 and sets up their own best practices and, and like policies. So BSL2, I, as far as I know, most of them do not have any enforceable protocol where if you get sick with a random like cold or something, you have to report or take samples. No, that doesn't happen at BSL2. In fact, I've seen a lot of kind of shoddy practices at BSL2. It's not even thinking about foreign countries. It's about things I've seen in North America. In general, yes. There, there are parts of the experiments that are sometimes done outside of the, the hood of the cabinet where where you're slightly more protected. But actually, that, that cabinet protects your work. It doesn't protect right. you. It doesn't protect you. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. It slightly protects you, but it's not built to protect you. It's built to protect your, your work. And, and there's so many things that could happen, just splashes, like aerosolization of things that can happen at BSL2. People using their gloves on doors and, and on their cell phones. I've seen people using, touching their experiments with their gloves, then reaching into their pocket and bringing the phone up to the other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There are lots of things that happen at BSL2. But I also want to point out one thing, is that there is photographic evidence of these scientists when they're collecting viruses, not wearing proper PPE. So there are photos of them with no gloves, no masks, just handling the bats. And I would say that it's not because they are terrible people who don't mind causing a pandemic. It's because these virus hunters had spent so many years collecting the samples that their level of cautiousness had, had dropped. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They sort of forget about the risk. Yeah. yeah. There's simply no way to have a biocontainment condition when you're sampling for viruses in the cave, right? Mm -hmm. You're surrounded by yeah. hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of bats flying everywhere, pooping, dropping on you, like biting you, unless you suit up, you know? And that and makes it very difficult for you to move around and to crawl into these tight spaces. So there, there were conditions when they just went out there with, without yeah. PE to mm -hmm. take samples. Yeah. And I mean, again, from personal experience, trying to do this research when you are wearing all of this equipment, remember that the average bat that they're working with is very tiny. The more gloves and the more coverage you have on, the less dexterity you have. And it's not to say that you want to trade off risk of exposure by having no gloves on versus risk of exposure because you're trying to handle equipment with a tiny bat in the hand. But these things are particularly difficult. Not all of the bats, of course, will be infected. If you're working with 100, maybe it's one, maybe it's far less. It's not to excuse negligence of safety protocols. But at the same time, there is a complexity that happens here that you know would make some sense of the pictures that, that you were talking about. Yeah, that, that's actually a, a snippet, an interview in David Quammen's book, Spillover, where he he is on a trip with one of these eco-health scientists in, in China looking for SARS-like virus <laughs> in a bad case. I remember this part of the book, yeah. And and he, he suddenly realizes, I'm not wearing any PPE. I'm not wearing any protective <laughs> equipment, but we're out hunting for SARS-like viruses. So he asks his eco-health like, guide, and he says, hey, why aren't we wearing any you know, masks and gloves, that kind of thing? And the guy says, well, it's kind of like wearing a seatbelt. And my assessment is that on this trip, we don't need it. So I don't tell anybody to wear it. So it's just some subjective, like uh, just yeah. on, on that day. Well, and there's plenty of people that go on vacation, walking in caves and things. You know, if you're going to collect bat samples or take the bat guano off the floor, then you're going to suit up. But if you're just walking across that same floor, your risk is really not all that different in case you're on vacation. In other case, you're doing research. So. Yeah, exactly. These scientists, they were looking at the tourists walking in their flip-flops and they thought, why do I have to be suited up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. exactly. And, and so they eventually started catching these bats and bringing them back to the lab as well. And then there's videos of these two at the WIF, like they were, they even filed patents on how to build cages for breeding these bats. Speaking of that, you know, we're imagining these scientists studying these viruses, culturing them. They must be cultured in animals or cell lineages. So what, what are those animals? What are the cell lineages? Just, just draw the picture for us. Okay. So you are this virus hunter, uh, 
you've you've collected these tens of thousands of pathogen samples. Now now what? So you ship them all back up to the lab, and you you first want to find out how many of these samples have the viruses that you're interested in. So certainly almost every sample has pathogens in them because you're collecting it from wild animals. But how do you find the viruses that you are specifically interested in? So you you run a quick uh, DNA or RNA test to search for the genetic material, a, a very highly conserved part of, of the virus type you're interested in. And so they would do this routinely for SARS-like viruses. They would go to check how many of these samples have a SARS-like virus in them. And when they found such samples, they would try to grow the virus out of them. And initially, they were quite clumsy with it. But over a decade, this lab built up some like unparalleled levels of resources and, and a pipeline for isolating these viruses. So they would uh, they had this range of different cells in the lab from, from primates, from humans, from bats, from pigs. And they would put the samples from, from wildlife samples onto these cells to see if they could get viruses from there. And sometimes at first try, they couldn't. So they had to do this thing where they serially passage those viruses through these cell lines. So they would pass it multiple times through cell lines. And eventually, if they would see that cell death was occurring, that, that meant that the virus had been found. So a virus had been grown. And so, so this very routine practice, actually, is capable of causing adaptation. So you've just taken a bad virus, or, or let's say you've collected a wildlife sample from a bat or a raccoon dog even, and you've taken it to the lab and you've just done this thing where you've passed it several times over cells to try and encourage it to be able to grow, to infect cells. So by like five passages on or something, that virus has picked up many mutations, adaptive mutations that weren't apparent in the wild. And they show this very clearly for one case where they were tracking a, a swine virus. So something that was infecting farmed pigs is that initially it couldn't grow in primate like monkey cells. But by the time they pass it through five times over these cells, they could see cell death. So that virus had adapted to be able to grow well in the lab. So there's nothing inherently nefarious about this process. It's just something that is done in these labs to, to be able to grow the virus and to study it in the lab. And and to be clear, that that's a potential explanation for why there was not a lot of early evolution in the SARS-CoV-2 lineages that were found in, in Wuhan, that they had been previously passed, done this serial passage technique. Yes, and unfortunately, this process can can cause the virus to become adapted to different species in the lab of these cells to, to be able to, to latch onto receptors on these cells and to enter and to replicate, to use the machinery in these whole species. Right. Okay. Well, this is a good time to go back to what we had promised to talk about the, the furin cleavage site. Maybe say a little bit about the sort of degrees of confidence that we have, or the given your expertise and, and what you know from the literature, what's the more likely scenario that through a passage, this adaptation happened or through something more active, you know, a researcher finding this particular gene and intervening it somehow within an, another existing virus. I mean, which one of those is more technically plausible? Which one of those seems more likely based on the records? So the, the furin cleavage site is a feature in the spike of SARS-CoV-2, and it helps the virus to infect cells. So it's a way to activate the spike. And it, it's it's the reason why the SARS-CoV-2 virus can infect so many different cells in your body. Wherever the cells are producing furin, uh, that's where the virus spike can get activated and then to, to grow and to allow entry into the cell and to infect and grow and cause disease. So SARS-CoV-2 is the only SARS-like virus out of dozens that have been studied and found so far that has such a feature. And so the question is, did this emerge naturally or was it put in in a lab or did it result from lab manipulation? So on the natural side of things, there are 
Scientists arguing that there are furin cleavage sites in other coronaviruses. For example, MERS has such a furin cleavage site feature. So not the exact same sequence, but it also has a furin cleavage site at that spot in the spike. So they say if nature can produce this, why do we need to say that it came from a lab? But on the lab side of things, the most striking piece of evidence is that in 2018, these Wuhan scientists, alongside their US collaborators, had said we're going to put exactly this feature into SARS-like viruses in the lab. So they don't give you the sequence, but they say exactly this furin cleavage sites, we're going to find them in the wild. We're going to look at sequences we found in the wild, take those furin cleavage sites, perhaps optimize them for humans, and then put them into SARS-like viruses in the lab. They also don't name the SARS-like viruses in the lab, and we don't know what they had in their collection. For me and others, this this striking coincidence that in 2018, the scientists said they're going to do this furin cleavage site insertion, and then less than two years later, a SARS-like virus with a furin cleavage site is rampaging in their city. Yeah, the timing is suspicious at the least. Yeah, It could have been any pathogen. <laughs> it could have been any city. It could have been any year that the pandemic started. But it was precisely a SARS-like virus with a novel furin cleavage site in Wuhan City. Two years after the scientists there proposed putting furin cleavage sites in yeah, SARS-like viruses. Yeah, yeah. And, and as I understand it, this information came out from a, a grant proposal, I think, to the NIH, right? There was a collaboration between the DARPA, the DOD. Oh, DARPA. Okay, and and it was it was not funded that that research proposal, right? And yet the suspicion is that some of the work was done anyway. Yes. So most scientists don't write grants that have like that just describe experiments that haven't been done. So you, you don't want to appear foolish in front of your your grant managers or right. to the, you want to know that you can do them. Yeah, you, you want to have some level of assurance. So at least part of the you know, the plan must have been de-risked, must have been tested preliminarily to, to see, is this even feasible? Because at the end of five years, you don't want to show up and be like, oh, all of these ideas were really uh, ambitious, but bad. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> we couldn't get anything done. So th- there, are even some, there are even some labs that write proposals where like all the work has been done already. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're just yeah, about right. to publish. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, they just want money. Yeah, you know? it's a cycle. You have all of the data. We call them as scientists. We call them preliminary data, right? So these yeah. are the these are the data for the not quite finished studies that justify more money for bigger studies or a follow up or something right. like that. And sometimes your preliminary data are published in Nature. Uh, right? Sometimes your preliminary data is the end of the story. Yeah, I think that's what it is. But but that's that that just adds. I mean, again, it's one of those pieces of color from a lot of conversations about this particular part of the story that I haven't heard a lot about that I don't think is percolated into the public so much. I mean, it's it's not like when a grant isn't funded, that means the research was never done. I mean, there's at least a timeliness about this preliminary thing we were just talking about, but big entities like this have funding coming in from many different places. There are many different parties involved all over the world in this case. Facets of this could happen you know, not independent of whether the money comes, you maybe need that money to take it over the finish line. But any successful competitive scientist, like you say, would have to have done parts of this to justify so much money coming back to finish the work. Plus, popping these cleavage sites into novel viruses had become increasingly trendy amongst virologists. Mm. And I don't mean to say that they were all risking pandemics, but they were doing it to study viruses. They were doing it to understand how viruses can be made to grow in in different cells, in, in human cells or in the lab. So it, it was just a thing that was increasingly done. It, it wasn't something that was like taboo, that was obviously like dangerous, or obviously too expensive to do it. In fact, the WIV itself had recently been co-authors on a paper where a furin cleavage site had been put into a MERS-like virus spike. So for them, this was just a natural progression. They've been talking amongst them and their US collaborators, they've been talking nonstop about cleavage sites and spikes 
of coronaviruses for for like five years by that point. So for them, this was just a natural progression. It wasn't something that was particularly new or particularly unapproachable or expensive. So let me just zoom out here and say, it sounds like at some high level, there's, there's two possibilities here. One is that the, the furin cleavage site got in naturally somehow. It was a natural recombination event and it spread, you know, either by a zoonotic event or by a lab accident. Another possibility that also is firmly within the lab leak sort of realm hypothesis is that the furin cleavage site was engineered. Of those two, what do you think the odds are of the engineering hypothesis being correct? I think the only way to tell is to look through all of the lab records, which are completely off access now, or to look through the communications between the Wuhan scientists and their partners internationally. So surprisingly, that has still not been done because the idea to put furin cleavage sites into SARS-like viruses actually came from a U.S. collaborator. So it, it's possible that the Wuhan scientists, if they did it by themselves, did they carry on the idea by themselves in their own lab with their own resources, easily done is that they might have talked to some of their collaborators in the States just to, to bounce some ideas off them. Again, this wasn't a thing that was like military or like particularly seen sure. as taboo. It's scientists talking to each other. Yeah, yeah so it, it's shocking that none of that has been investigated. And furthermore, when the pandemic started, these US collaborators who were aware of this plan did not tell the public. So they did not tell the public that, oops, like two years ago, we told now with uh, like collaborators that it would be interesting to pop some furin clearage sites into SARS-like viruses. None of them came forward with that. It was only in late 2021 that this research proposal was leaked to the public. Right. Another, another point is, um, you know, if, if this engineering process is what happened, then there must be records of something very, very close to SARS-CoV-2 existing in the WIV, right? And, and yet there's been no viruses apparently disclosed or discovered that are you know, more than two or three percent different than than SARS-CoV-2, right? Which is still pretty distant, right? For a virus, three or four percent is a long ways away in evolutionary time. Yes. So, at the time that the uh, SARS-CoV-2 outbreak was detected, the closest relative was in the possession of the WIV, and this was a sample that was collected in 2013 from a mine where people had sickened with a unresolved respiratory illness. So there are some theses covering this incident. One of them is a medical thesis by the doctor who treated these patients. And their conclusion was it was most likely a SARS-like virus from a bat that caused these patients to sicken. And half of them died. So three out of six died. Uh, they did not diagnose them early enough to collect samples that would have allowed them to track the viruses. But according to these theses, there are two of them, a medical thesis and a doctorate thesis from the actual Chinese CDC director's lab saying that samples had been sent to the WIV from these patients and that antibody tests had found antibodies against SARS. So, I mean, that you know, the, the fact that this story wasn't revealed by the WIV on their own initiative in early 2020 to the public, I think it, it made a lot of people very distrustful of them, that how much are they not telling us? And furthermore, as more close relatives of this pandemic virus were found by other groups, uh, some were found in Laos, uh, so a Southeast Asian country bordering South China, where, where that mine had been located, actually. Um, the Equal Health Alliance denied ever going down to Laos with the WIF to collect samples from that. But then just upon checking the public literature, you could see that actually they started doing that. They had been collecting samples from Laos uh, several years before the pandemic even. So there's this track record of them sort of reacting to, to the public or, or not sharing information that is is reasonably important to understand. 
until forced to. Yeah, yeah. But but so that 2013 virus, um, and I think we're talking about what RATG 13 is that it? Yes. Um, was say 96 ish percent similar to SARS-CoV-2, and the one from Laos, the the collections from Laos were like 97 percent similar to SARS-CoV-2. But that's still a long ways from 99.99% similar to... Yes, exactly. So so the RTG 13 is 96.2% and the Laos banal virus is 96.8%. So these two are still fairly diverged from uh, the pandemic virus that you still need to understand whether a 99% match had been collected by the WIV in between 2016 and 2019 yeah. and worked with. Yeah. So they may know that they have that in their collection or, or we're dealing with it, but it's just never been disclosed. Yes. So there is this striking interview published in the Scientific American where uh, Shi Cheng Li, she's, she's the, the, the scientist leading that lab and the WIV that's collecting all these bad virus samples. She says that when she first heard about the outbreak, she thought, how could this have happened in Wuhan? They never expected such a outbreak to happen in Wuhan in central China because these SARS-like viruses were mostly found in South China or Southeast Asia. So for her, for something to happen in her city was shocking. She said she ran back to her lab and went through all her records. She couldn't sleep for nights until she realized that she, she said it wasn't from her collection. So she didn't see any trace of that virus in her collection. That's when she was relieved. So uh, again, this idea that even the top experts in precisely this virus type did not expect it to be emerging in, in their city in central China. So it's, it's clearly not a conspiracy theory. Like they, they, they themselves thought it was more likely that it might have come from their lab. Yeah. So the other lab that we've, I, I mentioned once, I mean, where does the Chinese CDC, this, this research place that was so close to the one on market, where does it now stand in this story, it sounds like everything we've been talking about so far really points more at with, except what you had just said about the director of this part of the research looking and it's not in our collections. Do we know anything? Do, do we have ideas about what the, the role of the CDC was? So in the early days of the pandemic, actually, one of the earliest people to, to say that the virus may have come from a lab was Chinese scientists. So there were two Chinese scientists in Wuhan who, who put up this uh, online report or preprint saying that pointing to this Wuhan CDC and also the WIV. So they, they pointed at the Wuhan CDC, which had just released actually a promotional video of their scientists going out and collecting these bad viruses, in, in which he said that he he was all suited up, but he said that he had been exposed several times, like bats urinating on him, biting him, that kind of thing. And then he would quarantine himself because he, he knew that it was a chance exposure that could lead to an outbreak. Um, and so they, they pointed out to this Wuhan CDC that had just in 2019 relocated took several months relocating across the city to just a few, like maybe even like two blocks from that market, from the Wuhan seafood market. So it's just in the center of Wuhan city is, is what it means. So they said, rather than the market, it might have come from that lab. Today though, I would say that because that Wuhan CDC largely sampled bats in the Hubei, central China area, I don't think that they would have had collected the precursor to SARS-CoV-2, which I think most scientists would tell you most likely came from South China or Southeast Asia up into Central China. So it's it's not that it came from a bat in Central China and infected animals and then people in Wuhan. It's that there must have been the South China or Southeast Asian ancestral bat virus that slowly made its way up into, into Wuhan city, city eventually. So I don't think the Wuhan CDC is a particular focus for me right now. I mean, they, they are located very close to the Huanan market. But again, both of these sites were right smack in the middle of the city. Uh, and if since we understand that the outbreak had been widespread by then, by late December, is it really shocking that 
it would be all over the market. And, and if it if they had gone into like the hospitals and even the subway station and taken swabs there, I'm pretty sure they would have picked up the wires there too. So for me, the location is not so strong so much as the city of Wuhan out of all of the other thousands, possibly tens of thousands of other dense human hubs in China and Southeast Asia. Okay. Okay. There's so much to talk about. We have, we don't want to keep you for several more hours. Um, I know it's like you could write a book. Yeah, you could write a book. <laughs> um, let's let's zoom out and and start to talk about what we can do better next time because I think there's just sadly no way that there's not another next time of some form. In this particular case, though, how do you think we get to closure or as close as we're ever going to get to closure in this scenario? I think you, in the end of the book, you almost appeal to Chinese scientists or other folks in China that were involved and maybe, well, reasonably worried about talking about what's going on. So do you imagine that's going to happen soon? Or do you think that information that we've not had is going to come out by some mechanism in the near future? So like I mentioned earlier, I believe that this question of how the pandemic started is too important to China, to the Chinese government to, to leave a mystery. I think it's reasonable to, to believe that there are people in China who know exactly how this started. So they may not have like physical proof of it, but I think they there are people who know. And so it's just a matter of time before that, that truth comes out. Uh, it could be next year. <laughs> it could be 10 years from now. It could be like 50 years from now. People just don't know. But this, this matter where you have 20 million excess deaths due to the pandemic is too big to just forget, to just like let it be. And I know that a lot of people today have this feeling like this must be the last pandemic of my lifetime. You know, a lot of people are like this will never happen again in my lifetime. But we have no guarantees of that because whether it came from the wildlife trade or from a lab, those two activities are still largely going on and proliferating. In fact, for, for, for the lab research, especially due to the pandemic, there's, there's been so much more funding and, and interest in tracking down novel infectious diseases, tracking down novel pathogens. So there are a growing number of laboratories around the world, again, with varying standards of biosafety, all going out there, taking samples from animals and sick people and bringing them back to the lab for study. And so I, I, unfortunately, I'm not that optimistic. I don't think that this is the last pandemic or, or outbreak we'll see, like major outbreak we'll see in our lifetimes. And I think it's important to, to take action. But herein lies the problem is that you have two battling factions. So on the one side, you have people who, who say this, this must have come from a raccoon dog around the market. And so we need even more, even more virus hunting. We need even more virus manipulation. We need even more gain of function, like research in labs so that we can prevent these natural outbreaks. And then on the other side, you have people who, who are saying, hey, this, this probably actually likely or plausibly came from exactly that type of research. So you should be banning them <laughs> or you should be restricting them on, on like offshoring their research into like remote islands where there's like you know a month worth of quarantine so there are these two factions battling and unless the origin of COVID-19 is revealed to to a reasonable degree I don't think that they will reach a like consensus there won't be any way to move forward I, there have not been actions taken to to effectively combat the wildlife trade or, or the proliferating virus research like risky virus research so on that point just want to be super clear that virology, like 99.9%, like fantastic, good, essential work. But there's just like very niche group of scientists, like very super niche. Only a few labs around the world are doing this type of work where they are unintentionally or otherwise enhancing these natural viruses. And that might bring them to be able to cause human outbreaks. 
Yeah. Well, one of the arguments that I know has been made about the why continue to do gain of function research and these kinds of things is that it's going to help us. Like, I think one of the original motivations of EcoHealth Alliance was to, and the collaboration with with was to produce a vaccine that was protective against all sorts of SARS. So we had SARS one and then SARS two. That this was work done before SARS two, but in principle there'd be a SARS that a SARS vaccine to protect against anything that could ever emerge. That's a super noble goal, right? Yeah, as a very noble goal. And it's quite likely that of things to emerge, these viruses would be in that set. I mean, we'd been talking about that once the first SARS was was discovered. But um, is that really justifiable? I mean, especially in the case of the innovation that was mRNA vaccines, I mean, and the rapidity that those were brought to market relative to the traditional way of developing vaccines. Is that reasonable now, or is that not really going to be part of the next pandemic control mitigation of the next pandemic? I think we've kind of seen from this pandemic how resistant people are to vaccines. <laughs> so, <laughs> For very different reasons. Than, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, maybe a lofty but less practical goal, I guess, is is this idea of creating a pan coronavirus vaccine and and delivering it to people in time that you could delay or, or to, to stop it pandemic completely. But I, I think that although it, it, there's some scientific basis to it, I think it's been kind of oversold. So this idea that you can stockpile these pan-coronavirus vaccines and then give them to who? The military? Like, you know, how are you going right. to put it down on all the healthcare workers around America even? like I think most of them will just boycott. <laughs> At least in the near future, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can see from a scientific level that this is very interesting and you know noble. But from a human level, having lived through this pandemic, it seems like that's not going to work. Like what what works is like building secure channels for information, for information to flow internationally uh, and building, uh, incentivizing whistleblowing, incentivizing good journalistic investigations. And there's, there's some things in the scientific community that can be done too. So, so one thing we've seen is that there are many of these organizations, funding organizations, database organizations, journals, that they have a very closed door policy about what information they have. So even the scientists sending in information about human to human transmission and the journal is like, I can't do anything because <laughs> this is the property of the scientists. But I think we have to rethink this for this specific field on infectious diseases is that no, it's not, it's no longer the property of the scientists that there is a, there's a moral obligation to release in real time. So a lot of these have to be changed to prepare us for the next pandemic. Um, and I think a lot of it is, is building public trust as well. And that, that is one thing that's taken a major hit, like major, major hit in this pandemic. So this idea, if we're going to vaccinate all these healthcare workers or military people with like pan-coronavirus vaccines upon the news drop of, of a novel pathogen. just seems like pie in the sky, right? Yeah, it's just like not reasonable, yeah, I think. Yeah. 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 So... I mean, you touched on some aspects of this, but you know, if if you were made the director of CDCs around the world, let's say the American and Chinese CDCs, uh, what you know, what what would you do to make this sort of virology research safer? So, I mean, the first thing is moving them out of major cities. A lot of scientists say that, but if you move them out of the major cities, then no one wants to do this work anymore, and we won't be able to recruit talent. But I think that's utterly untrue because a lot of the top scientists are no longer physically doing the experiments themselves. They have very skilled technicians doing the work. So you could build these very high security, high biosafety facilities with strong quarantine and testing measures in a remote area, like ideally a place that's, you know, in 
in an island <laughs> where there's no cars driving in and out, like there's very uh, reduced chances of, of exposure. Rather than right now, where you have them in the middle of the city, city, sure, you have procedures for them to decontaminate, but the person could literally get exposed in some way due to accidents and walk out on the streets into the nearest like coffee shop or bar. If you want to do the gain-of-function research, do it in a very high containment <laughs> condition. So I, I think that this is not a high request. This is not an unreasonable request for the public to make when their lives are at risk. Yeah, yeah. Would you prohibit gain-of-function research? No, I don't think so. Because the thing that when you prohibit this type of research, it just goes underground. Mm -hmm. So that's my same idea with with journals publishing this sort of work. Is that I'm not saying that they should never publish the work, but they should set some very strong criteria for publishing this work, which is that you will not publish work that describes things sequences that were not published within a month of sequencing. Let's say so. If if you instituted such a policy then people would have to very quickly share sequences they found online or at least into some international confidential database so that that we don't have this problem now where we're like, oh, we don't know what viruses they collected in the past three years. So I think that there are things that can be done to, to make this work more safe and more transparent. Well, uh, we're getting to the end. Um, we wanted to ask you first, so what, what's next for you on this topic? You know, are you doing research on this in the lab? Are you thinking of writing another book that follows up on additional information that's come out since Viral appeared? What's next? So when I had written Viral and it, it was released in November 2021, I had thought at that point, okay, now a bipartisan commission is going to be initiated and there's going to be a fair, credible investigation of how this started and how it was responded to. That didn't happen. 2022 arrived. I thought, okay, this is the year. It didn't happen. And then 2023 arrived. And again, it didn't happen. So I have to say, I'm not, now no longer very hopeful that such a commission will happen. But what, what is happening at least is that there is a select subcommittee that is, of course, led by the Republicans. And they are, they are pulling out all sorts of information from different parties. And not, although I don't agree with their strategy, I do think that drips and drabs of things are coming out. So even if it doesn't point us exactly at lab origin, if it, even if it doesn't give us certitude, at least they are asking questions and, and trying to get information. So for example, one, one bill that was passed, like the COVID origins bill, I think of 2023, it asked the intelligence community, asked the director of national intelligence to release all information about what they know uh, connecting the, the with to the original COVID-19. Unfortunately, the DNI decided not to do that. So they put out this really extremely brief like report. Most of it was just like summaries and like legends. <laughs> like, they, they told us barely anything. But what this means is that, that there is stuff that's not in the public domain yet. And, and I think seeing as how the FBI and the Department of Energy, so these are the two agencies with arguably the strongest scientific expertise. They actually have scientists in there to, to help like interpret these data and evidence that they are both leaning towards the lab now, I think it's like, likely that we're going to find out a lot more. I think there's, there's information here in the US either that hasn't been found or is private that eventually the public will, will learn about. Yeah. Okay. So last question, Alina, if you could ask anyone at any point involved in this story one question, what's the thing that you would most want answered? Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a superpower. I mean, uh, wouldn't one just go straight to the Wuhan scientists and ask them if it came from their lab? <laughs> I, mean, I kind of expected you to say that. But 
I mean, so you think you is is another way to say that that having access again to this database and the opportunity to dig into it, that would be about the most valuable thing we could have now. Yes, I think that if there was a way to to find the 2019 uh, or early 2020 version of these databases and lab records, that's where you would get evidence either ruling out or, or confirming a lab origin of COVID-19. But we clearly might never have access to that. So I think getting the personal testimony from these collaborators as well, maybe not in a public hearing, but just calling them into a, a private interview and saying, just just tell us what you know. You know, like this, this sort of thing, like we understand that in early 2020, a lot of people thought this was just going to go away, like the first SARS outbreak in 2003. But, but now we are stuck with this virus that will never leave humanity. All of us are just getting serially vaccinated and boosted into infinity. And like just new variants coming up every year. And, and even our children have to be vaccinated. Like, oh, it's just like, this is, this is fine, but it's too, too much to have happen again. And, and we need to know how it happened. So, so anyone who has vital information, like, what are you waiting for? Yeah, this has been a really great conversation, Alina. Yes, it has. <laughs> Thank you so much for walk, yeah. walking us through all of these details and for writing the book. Uh, it was really, really eye-opening for me. Um, before we go, is there anything else you'd like to say? Any, anything that we didn't cover? Yeah, I would say that there's something I want to say about gain-of-function research and assessing risk of these experiments is that this diffuse proposal from 2018, what it shows us is not just that scientists had the idea to put furin cleavage sites into cells like viruses, is that these top scientists were not able to accurately assess the risk of this work. So fast forward to today, if anyone is submitting a grant to the NIH or the DOD saying, I want to put furin cleavage sites in the SARS-like viruses, <laughs> I don't think they will get funded because people like, this is a pandemic risk. But in 2018, before the pandemic started, these top experts in the world studying SARS-like viruses didn't think that this experiment was too risky to be worth doing. So what that means for people today is who can you trust to accurately assess risk? Who out there can actually tell you this experiment is likely to start a pandemic. I think this is a really tough question to ask, and it has implications for like hundreds of millions, potentially billions of dollars, how it's spent on, on this type of research as well as preventing and, and responding to these uh, outbreaks. So that's the future-facing question that, that's on my mind. Yeah. Alina, again, thank you so much for your time to talk about things. Thank you for the effort that's gone into you know initially writing the book and then to having the the interest and passion to make sure that the public um, knows about this kind of thing. Like you say, at, at your career stage, that's especially impressive and, and yeah. risky. And uh, I, I just think it's fantastic that you've, you've done that. Thanks for inviting me on Big Biology. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you hear, let us know via X, Facebook, Instagram, or just leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. Write us at info at bigbiology.org. Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery for producing the episode. Thank you as well to Dana De La Cruz for her amazing work on Instagram and X. Kidding Shimeri produces the fantastic cover art. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear and Tyrion Costello.